Hello listeners and viewers, this is Warren Wade Anderson. Welcome to the 85th episode of Inside the Phoenix, part two of our conversation with world-renowned photographer Jamal Shabazz. In part one, Marcus Penn and I discovered that at the foundation of Jamal's photography is his need to empower the people around him, especially the marginalized, to have pride in themselves. At the tail end of the last episode, he emphatically expressed this mission as his job, which led me to ask, why is this your job? Because I know, and when you know, you have a responsibility to take action. And then let me go further. How, how would you know what's good for me? Well, my thing is, first is what's good for me. I'm dealing with me, sir. My, I'm dealing with me first. I'm looking in the mirror what I need to do and my family. Mm-hmm. I'm, that's my key right now is my family because there was a time I would go out there in the street and strive to uh, deliver what I felt was a message. Now it's just my family. At the end of the day, it's them. And Absolutely. why do I know it's good? Because I, I, I'm looking at what it's, what it's doing for me. If I'm trying to tell brothers we need to watch our diet because we're dealing with a high degree of a high blood pressure, diabetes within our community, it's actual fact. Yeah. If I'm striving to tell young brothers that we need to pursue education and knowledge so and, and get some type of employment, you know, you, certain things you really can't argue with. You know, I, tr- I tried to present in a way that it's not really an argument. We really look around and see with our third eye. You can't deny it because we all can agree there's a lot of killing going on in our community. Right. You know what I mean? So what I strive to do is, is present tangible facts. So, I'm not going to argue with nobody. I'm going to present it. I'm going to keep it moving. It occurs to me that, you know, that whole kind of cell phone photographs Loading, uploading it almost immediately. It's it's sort of on the other side of what you do. For instance, that young woman that we showed the photograph of you, you took her in the moment. You were still calculating the composition as you were doing it. Of course. You probably took a few photographs of her, and you picked the best photograph. Not really. No. At that time, one shot had to go. So the majority of my photographs is really just one shot. Huh. So that whole sense of improvisation was part of your yes. technique. Did your father have that, that sense of improvisation, or he was very studied and very technical? He was very studied and technical. For me, you know, I didn't have a lot of money right, right during that day and time, so if I had a roll of 26, or t- excuse me, 24 or 36 frames, everyone had to count. So I made sure that before I approached the subject, I already had the composition in my mind. I had my shutter speed and my uh, aperture. Everything was set appropriately. So I had to get it right the first time. There was really no second chance. You know, and that's how I pretty much shot every photograph. The majority of my work at that time was just really one, one frame. You, you speak about sort of the challenge of black people and what they can do to, to get themselves out of hardship. Now, you've lived in Brooklyn probably a good portion of your life. What do you think now about the gentrification that's happening? Because, because, because the gentrification is pushing out the people that were, you know, the, the prideful people that you photographed. To me, it was a part of all, going back to crack epidemic. I mean, crack inspired gentrification because every community across black America that you see gentrification was once, you know, crack infected, infested. I mean, you look at Harlem. I mean, nobody wanted to live in Harlem 20 years yeah. ago. So all the areas that were once really heavily uh, impacted by crack now have been gentrified. Same with Brooklyn. Bed-Stuy, heavily uh, impacted by crack cocaine. So for me, when I look at gentrification, I think that, you know, it's almost like a conquering army. It's like, you know, we, we fell for the, for the bait. Do you think we had a choice? Because 
the people that got addicted to crack, these were desperate people. The, the, the ones addicted, yes, but you know, it's a very difficult conversation for me because I know a lot of my, my peers who gravitate towards selling drugs, who came from the conscious community. And I think that mm. the love of money inspired a lot of it, a lot of good, because the money was so good. See, again, Scarface, you know, had a, 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 the reverse message. I mean, initially the movie was designed, to, it was an anti-drug movie, but whatever reason it impacted our community different. I know a lot of good brothers who right. looked at that money that instant gratification and say, yo, I'm gonna get paid. And I started to see that, that it was about getting paid. And but yeah, you bring up Scarface, why so many people just like, just look at how the movie ends. And I never understood why, that, why so many people cite that movie as such an inspiration and that specific character as an inspiration when you look at how short his life is. Because in my, in, in, you know, within my group of whatever, when I talk about how I don't like Scarface, from a hip hop perspective, from a film perspective, everything uh, racially, people look at me like, like like I'm crazy. Like I don't really appreciate that movie like most people do, and everyone think I it, like they look at me like I'm like I'm insane, like yeah. I'm an insane. It, person. it was so deep when that when the movie came out because I said we in trouble right now because I was working in the jail at that time, so I saw, you know, simultaneously when the movie came out what it did. It gave people a roadmap, and their thing was I'm not so going to get you, caught. You were a corrections officer, right at that time. You saw the influx of young men coming in. Oh, who were no doubt by? about it. Not only were they coming in, they were playing Scarface in jail too. So it's like they played it every day. It's like what's going on here? And I saw not only I saw two types of people coming in: those that were using and those that were selling. And it bothered me because these are people I knew, good people. I know individuals now who are doing life in prison because they because they fell for that. Let me challenge what you're saying there, and the reason that you felt you had a job to do, and even though you were and I'll get, I'll get to your time as a corrections officer. Is because you had perspective. Yes. Your your parents gave you perspective. A lot of these guys, you think they had the perspective that you did. My generation, the ones I'm speaking on, then a lot of brothers that I know very well, that I that I love, that I soldiered with, they had perspective. But I think the money was just too good. I know brothers that were going to college, you know, mm. prominent college, you know. And oh, excuse me, prominent universities. The money was just too good. Why didn't you do it? Who's to say I didn't? Mm. I mean, I've had encounters when I was in Germany, you know, and and it, it, it was it, you know situations were there. So I understood it, and I really understood it, you know, on so many different levels. But again, I had a love for my people, and I wanted to make a difference. I knew something was going on, so I was striving to encourage people that we cannot be a slave to habit. I started off telling people you know trying to inspire people we need to get off the cigarette you know replace a bad habit with a good habit let's put down the malt liquor and pick up the orange juice and put things in our system that's going to help us because where i came up in red hook we were uh, uh we was drinking a lot of malt liquor nobody stopped us nobody really came around other than some of the muslim brothers in the nation of islam to tell us we shouldn't be doing it but here we are 14 15 years old drinking old english 800 quarts and to this day, when I go back to my project, my community, brothers my age are alcoholics now. So for me, when I got out of that stage and when the brother inspired me and pulled me out of the grave when I was blind, deaf, and dumb and inspired me, I felt the need to go back and try to tell our, warn our people that we got to get off the cigarette. Because my, my father smoked two, three packs a day. So I grew up with that. All my uncles died. When I came home, all my uncles were dying of everything, drug abuse, a, 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 a poor diet. So I saw firsthand the devastation, and I didn't want that to happen in our community. And that's how profound the love was in my heart for my people. You're working as a corrections officer because you have you had this whole sort of catalog of photographs, but you weren't selling it, 
you were keeping it for yourself. Was was the was the photography did that keep you centered? Two things happened, and that's a, a very good question. I start to realize the power of my photographs when I became a correction officer because now my work became visual medicine. And what I mean behind that is that now I'm bringing my photographs into the prison, into the jail, and I'm sharing them with those young men that were under my uh, supervision. And unbeknownst to me, some of them might have murdered people in my photographs. Some of the brothers that might have sold drugs might come upon a photograph of a woman they sold drugs to. And now it's causing them to reflect because it was like that a lot. I mean, because I mean, I knew killers and victims. So when I brought the photographs in, in, into the facility, if you were an individual that are uh, in there for murder from Brooklyn, there's a good chance I might have a photograph of the person that you murdered. And I did. So it made people think. And I was trying to help brothers at the same time. It gave so, them so what to you world. did, what you, you, you did is you, you punched through that macho facade that they were walking. A lot of them were walking around with. Them who? They're talking about the inmates? Yeah. No, I mean, because, come on, Malcolm X is incarcerated. Uh, no, 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 no. But showing them the photographs and having them reflect on it, you can't bring machismo to reflection. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Right. It, it was something different because it was one of the tools I had in my toolbox to bring to them, my photographs. Yeah. And not only did I share the photographs, but I photographed them too. You know, because I wanted them to see a lot. I wanted them to see hope too. Because if you're incarcerated and now you're looking at pictures of freedom, it inspires you to say, you know what, I need to change my life around. Because one of the things I did inside the jail was I used my photography to inspire them. It produced a, com a conversation. We talked about what was going on. It gave me an opportunity to talk about the crack epidemic. It allowed me to talk about prostitution and homelessness and despair because I brought those photographs in. In turn, it inspired you too. To oh, continue. no doubt. It, it was an exchange because it, it gave me an opportunity to let, to let me know that these are, this is these are my people, you know what I mean? And, and, and I have to, and they, and they, they definitely inspired me because what does a prisoner look like? What does an inmate look like? These were people from my community. You know, I could have easily been on that same side. So I had a duty and responsibility. It was an assignment that I had to go on. You know, as, as I look back at my life now, I needed to be there because I was very fortunate to, to save a lot of brothers and they guided me. Some of the most brilliant minds I met were incarcerated. You know, I met wonderful, wonderful, wonderful men and women alike who were incarcerated. And I'm reading articles now. Some of them did 30 years for crimes they didn't commit. I have articles that just came out over the past five years in the New York Times of men that were in my, under my supervision that told me 30 years ago they were innocent. And they were innocent. So I gave them a sense of hope and encouragement by bringing in the photographs. You probably have thousands and thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of photographs. Yes, I do. At what point do you decide that you needed, you needed to publish it? Or did someone approach you? Or uh, What happened pretty much in 1998, 1999, you know, with a lot of the magazines, the Source Magazine, the Vibe, and Trace Magazine, I saw there was a void. You know, hip-hop was really, you know, taking center stage. And a lot of the people that were being featured were the stars, you know, the celebs. And the, the every average day people, they weren't the fans, for the lack of a better word, or those that represented the foundation of hip-hop. So I wanted to give a voice to my community. And the fact that so many people were dying, I needed a larger audience to kind of like present my work. And I felt there was a void. So I came up with an idea. You know, me and some of my coworkers from my generation, we were always talking about back in the days and how it was. And we were we reminisced because we, we were seeing the destruction. We were right there when crack hit. So we always talked about back in the day. I said, you know what? I'm, I, I would go to the bookstore quite often looking at various photography books and it was a void. 
other than James Van Der Zee and Gordon Parks and Roy DiCarava, there was a void with my generation. So I felt that the timing was right. And I felt that if I could put this book out, it could serve as a form of visual medicine, make people think. But at the same time, it was my way of giving back to the people I photographed. When you began to sort of pitch this idea for books, where did you go first? The first place I went to was Trace Magazine, you know, Mm-hmm. And Trace immediately liked the, they loved the story and they featured it. And not only did they featured the story, they created an avenue for me to, to exhibit my work in France. And, and how did you how did you know which photographs to show? Or is it just instinct? I like, bought a body of work. I, I knew the '80s was it. Whatever reason, crack changed everything, and the oh. style of that time period was so prominent. You know, the pride and the, the dignity was there, and I just felt I felt a good vibration. Again, it was a void. So when I went to Trace, Vibe, and Source. All of those editors, they all embraced the work and celebrated it. They all wanted to feature it. I mean, the source, forget it. When I went to the Source magazine in 1999, they gave me like a 14-page a, a spread, I believe. It was unbelievable. And the magazine sold out in New York like almost overnight. It became this major conversation. That's the thing, too. I mean, I think the lesson here for young people is do good work and the good work will reward itself. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I agree with that. And, you know, it's funny, too. Sitting here this whole time and watching you speak, sharing a part of yourself, your 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 views, and getting really deep. It as we're talking, it makes me think back on the documentary about you. Um, for those who uh, are listening who aren't familiar, Jamel Shabazz, street photographer, which is kind of what brought this whole conversation, this whole e- e- episode, to a head. Because in in some way, I thought it was a sign. Like I'm a film guy, as, as the listeners know. So first. In a short, in, in within a one year span, I saw my Brooklyn, and then I saw, uh, you know, Jamel Shabazz, street photographer, and I was like, this is kind of a sign. I need to talk to this guy. I need to, you know, and I immediately because the film specifically, Jamel Shabazz, street photographer, there were just things in that documentary that still, even now, I still think I don't see in other films and other doc- documentaries. But the more you talk, I do feel now like, yeah, I guess it was a little empty. There's so many things that just in sitting with you in less than an hour, I got more out of that. Mm-hmm. Then a documentary that was almost two hours, and I'm kind of I'm I'm a little d- disappointed out too, and I know you wanted to talk about that, yes. that as well. Um, with so. with the film, I think I was lost on the path at that moment because I didn't have a clear vision in terms of the ability I had to transmit a message that could have resonated around the world. When was this film done? Because I didn't get a chance to watch that film. It so. was done maybe about five years ago, five, okay. six years ago. It was made in 2011, mm-hmm. but released theatrically, I believe, between 2012 and 2013. So go ahead, I'm sorry. So in, in terms of with the film, you know, I wasn't in a really good state of mind. I, I wasn't meditating like I should have been, because if I did, you know, everything about that film would have been different. First of all, I might have used the word I too much, you know, and, and I think that I had just retired. So I was coming down after working in a very hostile environment, you know, and just seeing a lot of destruction. And, you know, and, and, and when I look at the film, it's, it doesn't represent what I'm about. And at the same time, I was very private. I didn't want to get too deep into who I was because I know that stuff could just be out there. So I was very apprehensive about really being open with the filmmaker. There wasn't really a great comfort zone there. Charlie Ahern is a, is a good man. He respects my work. He sees my vision and the value of it. But I didn't prepare for it because if I prepared for it better, my conversations would have been so much deeper. Hold on. Wait, I, wait. I'm going to make Marcus ask a question, but I... I hope you're not beating yourself up about it. I haven't seen the film yet, but it's my opinion that you can't prepare for an interview. You, you, can, you can have thoughts about your work. You're able to express yourself. 
in your mind as coherently as possible, but any kind of really prepared interview, they're not getting the full you. But I think with this, it was a little bit different because I had the opportunity to really present images that served as a narrative. And I wasn't thinking that way. So, okay, this man, this filmmaker's coming to my house. Let me pull out these images that have great meaning to them. Let me speak about this photograph here and this young girl who I knew as a baby who now is a crackhead. Let me tell you about this young man who, this is the very last photograph I took him before he got murdered. And I put a lot of time and energy in trying to save him. Let me talk about the nation of Islam and the impact that it had on my life. So a lot of things I was very vague with. So if I would have sat down and really meditated, okay, this filmmaker's coming to my home. This film has the ability to be seen all all over the world. It would outlive me. How can I best represent myself? And what I started to do, I revisited films of Muhammad Ali and uh, Jim Brown, who became like my role models, and how they presented themselves on dealing with social issues. And I and I really uh, I marveled at. I said, "Wow, that's how you engage in conversation." So you know, there were certain moments in the film was a missed opportunity because I was very vague on a lot of subject matters. Others spoke certain things about me, and it, a lot of it wasn't really correct, some of it was, mm. but I was in a position to really speak. But again, there wasn't a comfort zone with the filmmaker, because I didn't know him that well, so I didn't want to really get deep in the thing. He gave me the free range, but I didn't know the direction. There's even a scene in the film where, and it's, it's the funniest thing, where we're on the train, and I take him to like Avenue X, a neighborhood I never go to, because I didn't want to have this man, follow me in Brownsville or my neighborhood, you know, with a, with a camera. I even felt uncomfortable with him being in Harlem with me because I wasn't about that. That was, it was never about a film being done about me, you know, having a film. If, 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 if any, it just didn't feel right. If anything, what I should have done in retrospect was like, you know, to open up and say, you know what? My name is Jamel Shabazz and I'm here to document the history and culture of my people for future generations. It, it became about me and I'm trying to explain things and it's not flowing right because I'm not comfortable with a person following me with a camera and I'm trying to produce content now. And it just didn't feel right. And that's not how I operate. You know, so I've learned a lot from that. So when I look at I can't turn back the hands of time, but what I can do. I can get better. Like I'm working on my new book now called Pieces of a Man. And when you look at the imagery and read what I'm writing now, because I, 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 I know how to tell stories now. Uh, when it was first presented to me, I, was, I mean, I just transitioned from working in a, in a correctional facility. So from that to having a camera follow me, it just didn't work right. So when I look at it, it doesn't work right with me. But now, my, everything I'm doing now is straight no chaser. There I was reluctant to talk about issues, but it produced misconceptions. And even some people disappointed with me because they know my heart and my nature and I didn't really go out the way I could have. And even in the editing process, it should have been edited better. But that's neither here nor there. Only thing I learned from that now is that I have to do better. And I have to speak the truth regardless of whom or what. There, I, 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 I tiptoed around issues. When I look at Nas's documentary, and I said, wow, I was gonna get you into know, that. that's yeah. a powerful documentary. I know now. I didn't have anything to really mirror at that time. So you know what? Let yes. me look at this here and let me, this is a good uh, 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 I, concept that I need to incorporate within my documentary. Oh, I have some thoughts on that. And, and, and just, yeah, first of all, going back off of him saying, you know, the beating yourself up, I understand where you're coming from, and it, but it's interesting because at the end of the day, it sounds like you're talking as if you're the filmmaker, like you made the film and you're the subject. And, and that's what's kind of, it, it, it's really interesting. I understand, like at the end of the day, the film's about you and, and it's representing you, but it's almost as if you held the camera, you cut the film, you edited it, you did the sound. I do want to say that as, as disappointed as you may have been with the film, the, the folks that I know who have seen it, that film, in, in terms of just the hip hop aspect of that film, it still showed stuff that had not been done yet. So I understand it's, it's just, but there, there, is a po there is a positive light 
I have to give it to him. You know, I, I, have, I must say, you know, Charlie Ahern did a great job. It wasn't really on him. He, he, he pulled a lot of teeth. He right. was extremely inquisitive. Right. It was really on me. I'm not going to take that from him. I right. didn't give it to him. It sounds as if you probably need a little more time. I had before, that now. Before, before you're able to look at it again. Oh, I think I'll look at it maybe 30 years from now when I'm old and gray. And right. I can look back and say, okay, look at me how I moved around. But at this point in time. No, no, I, no it's not a matter of looking around. I think you'll probably see You'll probably see things that you didn't see, you're not seeing now. When I first saw the initial uh, film, I was immediately dissatisfied. And we went back and forth for a long time. Charlie made a lot of changes. And I realized that this is not me. So I was always taught, too, that silence is a great source of strength. You know, and I was not one for a lot of words in being in front of a camera. I've never been that person that wanted to be in front of the camera, nor I want fame or fortune. I just It's not my nature. Yes. In a sense, I, I, in a, Charlie wanted to tell my story. He was sincere. And I just didn't understand it at that time. So when I look at it, when I mm -hmm. saw the film immediately, I knew that this is not me. This is not how I operate. You know, right. this is, I don't want to have a camera in front of me. And I, that's just not me. And even, you know, I'm, I'm forcing conversations with people I normally don't talk to. That whole, when people look at that <laughs> film, they would think that's how I shoot. But right. I don't really get down like that. I didn't right. get, I mean, when I, when I, when I document people, we get into some deep conversations. I wasn't doing that in that film. I wasn't going to stop and really get deep about the diets and the struggle of our people. Right. I wasn't doing it. I, 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 I went another road. So when you look at how I'm operating, that's not me at all. I'm making conversations with I people I would normally not even talk to. You're presenting the role that you think that he needed for his film. I was, I was actually acting. And it was poor acting on my behalf because it wasn't me. And people that knew me were disappointed, some of them, because they said, that's not you. That's not yeah. the Jamel we know. Right. And, I, and, I, and, I, and I remember when it screened at, at BAM, you know, I kind of like went over. People said I bashed it, but I watched it like, my God, I have all these people that came out. I mean, it was full house, standing room only. Yes. And it's like, I dropped the ball. But now I said, let me pick up the ball by my artist talks. Now, we started with your father. How do you think your experience with your parents has helped you to be a parent? Oh, what I learned from my parents, again, we didn't really have a lot of conversations about anything. The, the information was there, and it's like seeking you shall find. Fine. Now, you know, I you come by my home. There's there's books all over the table. We're gonna watch films. Even my daughter, she says, you know, can we watch Tut together? You know, and we sit down and we watch films as a family. We never did that as a family. We sit down at the dinner table and we talk. We go to museums together and exhibitions. I never went to museums or exhibitions with my father. So I learned from what he didn't know because nobody really was there to teach him. So I realized how I have to be right now. Even I, I met with my cousin yesterday, you know, my first cousin, and, and I told her about her father. She said, I didn't even know my I didn't know what my father did for a living. It's like, how is that possible? I said, I knew what your father did for a living. I knew your father's a navy. Her and her father never talked. So one of the things I do, I communicate with my daughter. I see my daughter every day. Even when she went to the university, me and my wife, we were there with her all the time, encouraging her. And not only do we encourage her, but I said, I want you to bring your friends by the house because I want to sit and talk to them. So now when her college mates come by, we watch films. And I pass the baton on to them. And I say, you know what, have, matter of fact, here's a copy of my book. Have you ever heard the Black Power mixtape? Matter of fact, I want you all to sit down with me and we're going to watch this documentary. So what I do now, I'm proactive in the lives of not only my daughter, but I'm concerned with her generation and her friends. So I have an open door policy for young people to come by my house anytime. And I try to encourage them. And I've been very fortunate to have inspired a, a, a lot of young people to pick up the camera and to develop the inner self. If it's not the camera, it's writing. It's keeping a journal. It's poetry. Anyone who comes by my house, you sit on my couch, what are your goals and aspirations? My father, my parents didn't do that. 
So I learned from that because it could have made a difference in, in so many of our lives. We never talked about, you know, we never had conversation. Even at the dinner table, we never talked. So I realized the importance of conversation. So I always want to be not only the father, but I take great uh, honor in being an uncle. You know what I mean? I take it means a lot to me to uphold being an uncle. I had uncles around me that guided me and gave they gave me life life lessons I hold dear to this very day. So I strive to be the good uncle. I strive to be the good neighbor. Where the children on my block, I would take them to the museums. I would introduce them to photography. I would incorporate them in my photo shoots. These are the things I do because I understand my role as an artist. Not even as an artist, but as a as a person that, 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 that's been given a gift, I have a duty to pass it on to not only my daughter, but any, all of us. And even on Facebook, I always strive to, to put the seeds out there. People who write me, I write them back. I always try to give encouragement. Because again, it goes back to that mantra I shared earlier. I want for my brothers and sisters, I want for myself. So whatever I could pass on, I can. If it's writing a letter of recommendation, you, you, want, you, know, you want me to be your mentor, I try to lend my services to just guide people in a way that again, my parents never did, because they didn't know. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. It's truly been an honor. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed both parts of our conversation with Jamal. Check out his books, Back in the Day and Seconds of My Life. They are great portals into the diverse lives of New Yorkers in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. This is Warren Wade Anderson. Thank you for spending time with Inside the Phoenix.